So I don't know if you ever have those days where it's just like everything goes right. And uh, like I had one of those days yesterday. It was just like yesterday was my Sunday kind of because my weekend's Thursday and Friday. And so my Friday's my Sunday. And if I was going to church on the weekends like you, well, I do go to church on the weekends. But if I, if I was choosing a service like you, I would definitely go to the Saturday service so that I could sleep in on Sunday because I like my sleep. So really, so Friday was my Sunday when I'd gone to church on Thursday and so I could sleep in on Friday. And that was my plan to sleep in on Friday. But um, when I woke up in the morning, uh, there was this really weird kind of thing I hadn't seen for a while. It was a super bright light, and it was coming from outside light. And so I kind of looked outside, and the sun was shining. And I don't know about you, but when the sun's shining, especially this time of year, it just feels so good. And so I was like, I got to get up. So I got up, and I got ready for my day, and I went and got some coffee, and I came home, and we have a big sliding glass door, or a huge one that goes out to a deck. And so I, I opened up the door, and I sat in a chair right by the, right by the door, you know, so like the sun's coming in and it's radiating on you and you're getting really warm. And so I was just like doing some reading and doing some writing and I was just, oh, I don't know about you. I, I, the sun makes me feel so good. I don't want to talk about what uh, the, this weather does. But anyway, so like I was just sitting there morning, I was enjoying the sunshine and I thought, you know, I should go for a run because it's just been months of running in the cold and running in the rain. And so I got my gear on and it's like, I thought, oh man, I don't even remember what it's like to go running without hand warmers. And so I like got all, you know, ready to go and I went out for a run. In fact, I was so excited. I took a picture like it was just a gorgeous day yesterday. And I went out and I got about halfway done with my run. And I had worn too much, you know, I had too much on. And so I like had to take my gloves off and take my, you know, sweatshirt off, which was awesome. Because it's been a long time since I got to do that. So I went on the run and it felt really good. And my day just seemed to be going from, you know, good to better. And I came home for a while and I was kind of, you know, looking around the house. And I thought, man, I should go mow the lawn. I should mow the lawn. Oh, I don't, I've told you, but it's like, it's like therapy for me. And I thought, well, I can't mow the front lawn because that would be like, that would be like a, a cry for help to my neighbors, you know? So like I could mow the back lawn and I would keep my dysfunction to myself about my relationship with my yard. So I did. And this was the deal with God. I was like, I don't know if this is a good idea. And I hear it's supposed to be cold, maybe even snow in the next day. So I don't know if I should mow my lawn, but I can't help myself. So here's the deal, God. I left my lawnmower out all winter. I'm kind of trying to sabotage it. I left it out and I thought, I'm going to put gas in it. And if it starts on the first pole, I'm going to mow my lawn. I'll just, I'll just consider it a sign. So I put some gas in. I pulled it. It started right up. I was so happy. And so I mowed, I mowed my lawn. I, put, I mounted my camera on my, on my lawnmower. I was like so happy about mowing that. See, so I know some people think it's like a chore, but I, I love getting out, smelling the cut grass. I get to like, you know, trim some plants. And uh, it was just, ah, oh, I was so happy. It was so glorious. And then, and then I had this idea, I was like, um, so here's, here's one of the things I've been trying to do. Uh, when I was, I was sick for a while and I lost some weight, and so I was like, I'm, I need to gain some weight. And so I was decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat myself, I'm going to go to Sheridan's. You guys, who's been to Sheridan's over in Vancouver? Anyway, uh, yeah. So, right, so I'm going go, to go to Sheridan's, and here's why. Because um, today, March 1st, um, they're starting their um, spring flavors, and one of them is the, the lemon bar concrete. Anyone ever had that? It is the bomb. Okay, so, but I, they told me, if you go on Friday, we'll, we'll give you a sneak peek. You can get it. So I was like, all right, so I'm going. So I went to Sheridan's, 
And when I was walking up to the counter, right, because they have the windows that open, when I'm walking up, uh, one of the owners is inside and some other people are inside, and they're kind of laughing at me as I'm walking towards the window. So I'm like, I'm, I'm an insecure person. So I'm just kind of like, what are they laughing at? You know, and I'm checking and like, I'm just kind of walking up and I walk up and they're laughing and I'm like, okay, well, what's up? And they're like, they're laughing and they're pointing at the window. So I, I look, I, they say, you got to come. So I put my head in the window and so I can look outside, like to see what the customers see when they look out. And here's what I saw. So here's what they have mounted on their window. So they have these, now here, I don't, you probably can't read it. Let me, all right, so that, <laughs> and, and my thought was, how weird is that? There's, there's apparently a man of God in Vancouver and I look just like him, right? So, I was like, I'm taking the discount. So I had my, my, you know, Sheridan's and oh man, it was so awesome. I just, last night when I went to bed, I had like the, the window open in the bedroom because it was so warm and I just, I was loving it. And then this morning I woke up and I thought, oh, that's right. Adam and Eve. They like, they ruined, they ruined everything. Like sometimes you have those days and everything just seems right with the world. And then some mornings you, rain, you wake up and it's raining and it's wet and it's, you know, cold and, and uh, dark. And I just, ugh. And it made me think, I, you know, I kind of wondered. I'm like, I wonder if it felt like that for Adam and Eve, right? Like one day they're in the garden and everything's great. Everything's wonderful. And the next day, they're like, they're, they're, they're homeless, you know? They're like kicked out of the garden. It's probably, it's probably raining. They're probably living in the Northwest at that point. And, uh, you know, we talked about this last week. God created Adam, and he created him in the garden. It was, this, it was this perfect setting. And yet God came along and said, it's not good for Adam to be alone because Adam was created to live in community like God lives in community, like the Trinity is a community. And so God created woman. He created Eve out of his side. We said it because she's not supposed to be before him and behind him. But next to him, they're partners. She's a helper. And then Satan came along, right? We said he came along and he just basically said to her, God's holding out on you. The man's holding out on you. You're probably smarter than both of you and they're holding you down. And so you could be liberated from man and from God. And we're told that sin entered the world because of the choices that she and her husband made and the curse entered the world. And so basically we talked about some consequences of that last week. God said to Satan, you picked a fight, you're going to lose. And we talked a little bit about that with Eve. Uh, there's going to be uh, pain in childbirth and she's going to have a desire to rule over her husband, but the husband must lead. And we said that, that Adam uh, has to work the ground now and the ground is cursed. So they're, they're kicked out of, out of the garden and we begin kind of this long march through history. And as we go through the Old Testament, we see this, this pattern of creation that first came Adam and then came Eve. And, and the Old Testament is patriarchal. And some people have a, have a really hard time with that. In the Old Testament, it was men who led their households. And, and people were known by their, by their father's name. And in every book in the Old Testament is written by a dude, right? And nationally now, nationally in Israel, uh, there are women who lead as prophetesses and they serve as judges and even in the military. But the, the highest position of spiritual leadership in Israel was the priesthood. And the priesthood was reserved exclusively for male leadership to reflect creation. So first came man and then came the woman. Now the feminist looks and says, well, this is because of discrimination. This is because of culture. That's why. And yet the Bible says, no, it's the pattern that God established from creation. And then Jesus comes. 
the, the second Adam. And this is kind of where we left off uh, last week. So the second Adam comes. And he's, this time, he's going to do it right. He's going to get it right. He's born of a woman, but not of a man. He has God as his father. So he's not born in sin because sin is passed, as we talked about last week, through the father. Jesus comes on the scene. When he's about 30 years old, he begins his public ministry. And what, what we notice when we study the ministry of Jesus and his interaction with people was that his treatment of women was, was radically countercultural to his day. The religious leaders did not like that about him. Oh, we know, for instance, that he had, he had many, many disciples, and some of those disciples were women, which was radical for a rabbi, which Jesus was. Rabbis didn't typically do that. Uh, Jesus taught women theology. Two of his closest friends were Mary and Martha. They were women. The rabbis of that day would make women keep their distance from them. They would never allow a woman to touch them, and yet Jesus did. He was anointed by a sinful woman. Um, he talked with sin, sinful women like the woman at the well. He healed women. He treated them with dignity and respect. And in fact, it's interesting that the first people that Jesus appeared to after the resurrection were women, which is why I say, when you think about history, I think it's safe to say that Jesus has done more than anyone in history to elevate women in society, more than anyone. In fact, when, wherever the influence of the gospel has gone, the value and care of women has been elevated in those societies. Now, now, in our society today in America, we kind of think that the world that we live in and, and the value of women and the treatment of women here is, is normative. And yet, if, if you look at most of the world and most of history, in fact, it is not. It's the influence of the gospel in Jesus Christ over a couple hundred years that has made our society what it is when it, when it comes to valuing women. But when you go to places where the gospel has been shut out, you'll see women with veils, women who are not allowed to get an education, who can't vote, who can't own property, who are sometimes treated as property and mistreated. But even though Jesus did more than anyone to elevate the place of women in society, there's something that he did not do. Jesus did not eliminate the spiritual application, we're saying, of the order of creation. Again, Jesus had many disciples, including women. But the highest office of leadership in, in his ministry were apostles. Now, we know that when Jesus went to uh, pick apostles, he spent a whole night in prayer. He took it to the Father, and every one of the apostles were men. Now, some people will say that's, that Jesus didn't pick any women because it was cultural. That's not what you did. And yet, Jesus didn't seem to care about cultural norms. I don't think that would hold him back. He was a friend of sinners. He was sinners. We've talked about how rabbis didn't do that. You weren't supposed to do that. He befriended tax collectors. You weren't supposed to do that. That was countercultural. He healed on the Sabbath. Um, in fact, it's been noted that choosing a tax collector as a disciple was more scandalous than it would have been to choose a woman. See, I think if it was God's will to include women as apostles, Jesus wouldn't have hesitated to do it. But Jesus selects 12 apostles. They're all men. He ministers. Eventually, he's, he's betrayed. He's crucified. He rises from the dead. He returns to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit. The church is born. It begins to get organized. And, and Paul, and we've talked about Paul, was this, was this religious man who hated Jesus, who hated Christians, who was persecuting Christians and putting them to death. And then he meets Jesus. He gets saved. He becomes a missionary. And now instead of putting Christians to death, he's, he's encouraging people to come to Christ, to place their faith in him. He's, he's planting churches. 
Um, he's appointing leaders. We'll talk more about that next week. He's warning churches about, uh, about false teachers. He plants a church in Ephesus. He appoints leaders there. He tells them, as we talked about, that false prophets are going to rise up. And then Paul leaves. And then, sure enough, some men rise up who are teaching heresy. Uh, they're adding to the gospel. They're subtracting from the gospel. So Paul sends this young man named Timothy. He says, I need you to go there, fight the good fight. I need you to deal with the false doctrine. Now, for the rest of the book, we're going to kind of get a clue as to what some of that false doctrine is just by, just by reading the letter. And apparently one of the areas of false doctrine is this area of women and, and church leadership. And the message appears to be, when you, read, when you read this letter carefully, that there were some men in the church who were telling women in the church, you can be liberated from your Old Testament role of being a, a husband helper, because that's pathetic, that's lowly, and you're way smarter than him anyways. And, and you, could take, you, know, you can take charge of the church, you can take charge of the family, you can, you can be elders in the church. And it sounds a lot, in fact, like what Satan said when he came to Eve. You know, you don't have to be, look at that guy, look at Adam. The guy's a loser, right? Sitting on the couch, eating a sandwich, watching TV, you're smarter than he is. You know, he's just holding you down. God's just holding you down. You can be liberated. And that's really the message, apparently, that's being, that's being preached to women in the church in Ephesus. Now, when we talk about women in ministry, and I've, I've put this in your notes, it's, there, there's a lot of views, but you could say there's three general kind of broad views when it comes to women in the church and, and in ministry. The first is what we call egalitarian, and the view basically says that women can hold any office or any position in the church that a man can hold. We often refer to this as the, as the far-left view. They'll say women can be pastors, women can be elders, women can preach, they can set doctrine, they can be in charge, they can be in authority. This is by far the most popular position in the Northwest, because we're in the Northwest. Um, egalitarian. There's a kind of a second view. This is over on the other side, the far right side, you might call it. And this is a view that says that men and women are, are created equal, but they have also been created to operate in completely different areas of ministry in the church. So in this view, women cannot be elders. Women cannot be deacons. Women cannot serve communion. Women cannot teach. Uh, they cannot lead worship. They cannot pray in a public setting. They cannot read scripture in a public setting, in a worship setting. They cannot speak in a church service. Instead, they should focus on ministering to women, ministering to kids, uh, be quiet at church, and, and bake cookies. And, and then everybody's good and everybody's happy. And nobody's laughing. Egalitarian, hierarchical, and then somewhere in the middle is complementarian. I'm going to, I'll laugh tonight just to give you a clue that I'm kidding. Okay, complementarian, this is kind of more of the middle view, and this, would, this is kind of gateway sort of, uh, this is the view that we're absolutely closest to. And in complementarian, we'll say this, that, that men and women are equals, they are partners together in every area of ministry except one. In the classical complementarian, they're, they, they work together in every ministry except one, and that one area is the elder, area of elders. Uh, elders are exclusively men. They are to teach and to set doctrine in the church, and, and culturally you could say that's typically done from the pulpit, so typically in a view like this, we'll say that the pulpit ministry, that is the teaching or the setting forth of the word of God in a way that authoritatively um, sets doctrine in the church is what men do. So in the Old Testament... It was the priesthood. It was the highest position of spiritual leadership. In Jesus' day, it was an apostle. And in the New Testament church, it's the elder or pastor. Now, we'll talk about that specifically next week, but we're going to use elder and pastor interchangeably because they're basically the same thing in the New Testament. 
So in other words, in this view, everything else is open to qualified women in the church. Deaconesses, teaching, leading worship, speaking in church, uh, being on paid staff, serving communion, but not the position of elder. So let's look at our text today, starting in verse 11. Here's what Paul says. Just let's get off to a great start here, all right? Uh, let, a, let a woman learn quietly and with all submissiveness. So last week was really great in church because anytime anyone got up to walk out, like people would come up afterwards and say, did you see that? Somebody got up and they walked out and did they leave? Did they throw things? I'm like, no, they just got, they just got coffee. Don't worry about it. So anyways, it's going to be, don't get up. Everyone will be talking about you. So now some people say, okay, right off the, right off the bat, this is why I don't like Paul. I actually met, <laughs> met a lady up in Skamania last week who introduced herself to me um, in the neighborhood where I, uh, where I write sermons. And uh, she introduced herself to me and we we're talking about the Bible and she just said right off the bat, she felt the need to tell me, I like the Bible, but I don't like, I don't like Paul. Um, now, because a lot of people think that what Paul says is very demeaning and very patronizing. Um, but you have to understand, this would not have been demeaning and patronizing to the women to whom it was written in Ephesus in, Ephesus in that day. See, in the, in, in the Jewish society, most rabbis, in fact, even though women weren't barred from attending the synagogue, most rabbis refused to teach theology to women. They refused. And so there were really no opportunities for them. But now Paul comes along, and notice what he says. Um, he says, let a woman learn, or some of your translations say, a woman should learn. So Paul's saying something different. Paul's saying, he's affirming that women have the right, they have the God-given right to learn the Bible, to learn theology. Can women go to Bible college and be a theology major? Paul would say, yes. Can they go to seminary? He would say, absolutely. Can they learn Hebrew and Greek texts? He would say, sure, why not? Can they learn apologetics and, and church history? And Paul would say, yes, we, we think that women should learn. They should learn the Bible. They should learn theology just like men would. See, God wants women to be biblically informed, to be educated, to be able to defend the faith, to be able to share the gospel. Notice he says, a woman should learn. That was a radical message. Now today, we were like, what's wrong with Paul? What's, what, what's he got against women? But back then, they would have been like, whoa, this is, this is kind of a big deal. Women should learn. And then, so maybe this is the word. Maybe this is the one that people have a problem with. Quietly, all right? So it sounds like Paul says, a woman should learn, but she should keep her trap shut. Kind of like that's what he's saying. Now, there's been a lot of debate about this word, about the word quietly. Some have noted that the word means silence, which it does. And some have noticed that sometimes the word is used to describe a peaceable spirit, which it also does. So there's been arguments over the years, like, which one is it? I think the answer is yes. It's usually what I do with yes. I think it's, I think it's both. Let me explain. Now, apparently, in, in the church in Ephesus, it just makes me love my church all the more. In the church in Ephesus, apparently, when they would have a church service, the, the pastor would be teaching, Timothy would be teaching, and, and women would be interrupting. And, and apparently they were arguing with him, and they were debating with him. And so you can just, you can just imagine how difficult it would be to, you know, for Timothy to teach anything to people if they're just arguing and debating going along. So what he's saying is this. If you're going to learn, okay, if you're going to be a learner, a student of the Word of God, you need to be respectful, and you need to listen carefully. 
So I think he has both of these things going on. Now, some people will just say, what he means is shut up and don't say anything. But I, that's so inconsistent with Scripture. Scripture never says, just do this thing. Scripture always wants it to come from our heart, doesn't it? So what I think he's saying here is, people, and, and to women in particular, you need to have a peaceable spirit about you. You need to have the kind of spirit that says, I want to learn. And the way that plays out is, these women need to be quiet when they're in church. And then he says, with all submissiveness. Now, there's a great word, right? Uh, that just means to submit to the authority of another. Now, with that being said, you need to understand, apparently this was an issue in the church in Ephesus. Apparently there were women in the church who argued and debated, and, and when the pastor would define theology, they would say, no, thank you, and they would not submit to his teaching. Now, to be fair, Hebrews says that this is nothing unusual just for women. In fact, speaking to all men and women, it says, obey your leaders, speaking of, in, in the church, and submit to their authority. So this is, this is not just for women. This is not a sexist thing, but apparently in this church, it was an issue, and that's why Paul brings it up. And then he goes on in verse 12, because he's thinking, maybe I haven't offended everyone yet, so let's keep going. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather... Just in case we missed it, she is to remain, what? I only heard men say that. <laughs> now, this is a very interesting verse. If you get into the text, it's awesome. It, if you get paid to do what I do for a living, like read books and do research, this is just so intriguing. Like, for instance, again, if you look back, the, the egalitarians, they do some weird things with this verse. For instance, I read an egalitarian who took this verse and twisted and twisted until he said, actually what Paul's saying is, what he means is, I do permit women to teach and to exercise authority over a man. To which another guy said, well, that's a weird way to put it, which is true. But usually what an egalitarian does is they say, this is just cultural. Paul's just speaking to the church in Ephesus and it doesn't apply to us today. It's just for them. Now, the hierarchical view will say that women should never speak in church. That means they shouldn't sing. They shouldn't lead worship. Again, like we said, they shouldn't read scripture, pray out loud, lead a ministry, teach class, grow, you know, be, lead a grow group. Again, baking is okay, but no, no speaking. And then the complementarian, here's what they do usually. They come to the passage, and when they get to the word authority, now this is, this is important. When they get to the word authority there, what they note is, this is the only place in the New Testament where this Greek word appears. It's called a hapax legomenon in the Greek. Hapax legomenon, habama, bama, rama, something like that. So it's like, okay, and, and basically, it, because it only appears once anywhere in Scripture, it makes it challenging. We can't look at other passages and see how this word is translated. So what does it mean? Well, I think whenever you're not sure what a word means, I just maybe it's me, but I always think it helps to look at the context. So you just look at the context. Now remember when this book was written, Paul not he didn't write chapter one and then write chapter two and then write chapter three. He wrote a letter. And later men came along and they separated it. But if you're reading the passage, it just flows right into the next passage. I mean, it flows right into it. Like there's no break at all. That's called context, right? We look at it. What's the context? Well, he's going to be talking about elders, which we'll talk about next week. The contextual clue is it rolls right into the topic of elders. Now, the thought of many, many theologians, and I'm in this camp, is that when he talks about the word authority, the word here is a reference to the authority of an, of an elder. And we'll talk about this next week. But again, the elders are those who taught the word of God authoritatively in the church. 
There's a lot of teachers in the church, but the teachers theologically take take their cue from the elders. The elders are the ones who who define doctrine, um, and they usually typically do it from, from the pulpit. And so what he's saying here, I think, is that women are not to have elder authority in the church. He goes on, um, in fact, later on in chapter 5, verse 17, he, he talks about elders and he says this. Now, the elders who rule well, so one of the things elders do is they, they lead the church. They lead, uh, we'll talk about this, they shepherd, they pray over the church, they care for the church, they sacrifice for the church, we'll talk about that. But one of the jobs of elders is to lead the church. It's their, it's their job. Uh, they are to be considered worthy of double honor. That's actually their their. their compensation there. And notice this, and especially, especially those who work hard at two things, at preaching and teaching. So elders uh, are those who teach in the church. He's got preaching and teaching, but he says some work really hard at it. And those are the people we should honor because it's so important. So preaching is just kind of boldly declaring the word of God, which is kind of what we do on the weekends and stuff, where teaching is more just about just giving information, which is also important, just getting biblical education. These are the men, the elders, again, they authoritatively set doctrine. So when people in the church are like, I think the Bible's saying this, and I'm thinking it's, it's saying this, and there's arguments and debates, the elders are the ones who pour over it and say, this is what we believe scripture means. Now, we know that elders are not the only teachers in the church. There are many people who teach at Gateway, and, and there are many women. And, and we know that women biblically can teach. We know that older women are to teach the younger. Uh, there's a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who discipled a guy named Apollos. They didn't do it in the big church setting, but they did it in a discipleship setting. Proverbs says that parents should teach their children, and that certainly includes um, the mothers and the wives. But as I understand this passage... Women should not have the authority of an elder in the church where they are teaching and setting the doctrine in the church. Now again, some people will look at a church and say, well, that church is sexist because they, they, they won't let women preach on the weekends and the services. But again, we believe that this is tied to, to, the, to what elders do in the church, that they're setting doctrine, which is, again, it's what we're doing actually at this, at this very moment. So, for instance, at Gateway, how does this work out? Well, at Gateway, a, a woman can teach in any setting for which she's qualified and gifted. Those are important things. We'll talk about that. A woman can teach in any setting for which she's qualified and for which she's gifted, except for teaching authoritatively as an elder. And again, that is setting doctrine and teaching from the pulpit. Now, we'll talk next week more about that in detail. But at Gateway, women can teach a Bible study. They could teach a class. They can lead a grow group. They could teach a seminar. They could teach men. They can teach women. They can teach kids, provided she's a good student of the Word of God, that she's a gifted teacher, and that she's under the leadership of the elders in the church. Now, again, some people, they come to this to this passage, to this teaching here, and they say, well, this doesn't apply to us because it's culture, right? We talked about this last week. It's culture. And, and, it didn't, and I hear this a lot. Well, in Ephesus, it was wrong for women to be elders and women to have the authority of an elder, but not, not in the new church because we're, we're, we're smarter than that now and we're, we're liberated, right? And yet, what we notice is this. In verse 13, and we talked about this last week, he says, for Adam was formed first, and then Eve. So last week we examined Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And what we noticed is this. That, that, that this, there's an order of creation. That God, God first he created Adam. And then he created, he created the woman. 
And, and Adam's considered the firstborn, if you will. Uh, and, and in Jewish society, the firstborn had primary responsibility to care for the rest of the family. So Adam was responsible both for creation and for leading and caring for his wife. And he goes on and explains, and, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So again, um, studying for the sermon last week, and then I had a, a lot of discussions this week about that word deceived, and, and, and what does that mean? And there's a lot of theories. One of the theories is uh, this. Why is, why is Eve described as being deceived? Well, first of all, we know that, that Adam is the one who received the instruction from God, and he's the one who passed it on to Eve. Maybe that he didn't do a very good job of it, but one theory is that it may be that Eve had been well-intentioned in the situation in Genesis chapter 3, but, there, but, but she had Satan coming at her, and she had her husband eating a sandwich on the couch, not paying attention. There was a spiritual void. Remember, we talked about that. And, and of course, she's not looking to him, but he's not helping her. And so she was very much deceived because she was in this, so to speak, on her own. And of course, marriages today should not be like Adam and Eve's back then, where, where she's being tempted to sin against God. She's, she's being deceived. And Adam is, as we, we pointed out last week, Adam was right there. Adam was right there in the room. He's doing nothing. He's not trying to help her. She's kind of left on her own to fill the leadership void and make a decision there. And, and at, at, at Gateway, our goal is not to treat women as equals right? I don't think men should treat women like men. Our goal is to treat women better than men, all right? As, as men at this church, we want to treat women better than that. The Bible says that men are to be the heads of their homes as Christ is the head of the church. How is Christ the head of the church? Was he sitting on a couch and asking the disciples to bring him snacks and, you know, ignoring the church and abusing his authority like many men do today? No, we're told that what Christ did was, was completely different. That he sought out his church. That he went after his church. That he loved his church. That he wooed his church. That he taught his church. That he served his church. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve. And then he went to the cross for his church. And he died for his church. And he rose for his church. The way that Jesus was the head of the church was he served the church. He loved the church. He redeemed the church. Men are to love their wives the way Christ loved the church. But in our culture, it's all backward. In our culture, so often men leave a leadership void in their marriages that, that women are left to deal with. Because men won't lead. Because men won't make decisions. Because men won't pray. And women feel like they have to deal with it. Because they're married to men that are spiritually lazy, are spiritually shallow, are often just narcissistic. It's just about them. And when that happens in the church, and it does happen in church, when men won't step up, when men won't study their Bible, when men won't define theology, when men won't serve women in the church, and oftentimes well-meaning women jump in and try to fix things. And they're the ones who organize a prayer meeting that men won't go to. And, and, and sometimes it comes about that they begin to teach and, and, and begin to teach doctrine. And oftentimes this is done, I think, by women who mean well, women who love God, women who love the church, but the men won't step up. I was reading some statistics this last week that were kind of interesting to me. Uh, it goes like this. Uh, I took a lot of them out, but here's a few. Uh, Christian women 
are 16% more likely than men to pray in a week. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that men, if they, remember we talked about this? Men are to, are there to lift up what? Holy hands. I hear all the women's hands. They're to lift up holy hands in, in men. In what? Prayer. Let's try that again. <laughs> no, let's not, all right? Men, the men are to live. Guys, we're supposed to be the ones praying in this place, and yet women are 16% more likely to pray in a week than men. Women are in, in the church are 23% more likely than men to no, donate money to their church e- each week. Christian women are 29% more likely than men to share their faith in a year. Christian women are 29% more likely than men to attend church in any given week. They're 29% more likely than men to read their Bible on a daily basis. They're 39% more likely than men to have a devotional time. That's disturbing. They're 46% more likely than men to be discipling someone else. They're 54% more likely than men to be in a small group. 56% more likely than men to serve in their church. And they're 100% more likely than men to be in a discipleship process. And here's the problem. That oftentimes, women don't realize that you cannot solve a spiritual problem with an unbiblical strategy. They mean well. I think often they're well-intentioned. But let me say that again. You cannot solve a spiritual problem with an unbiblical strategy. When you have a husband who won't lead, when you have men that won't lead in the church, this is between God and those men. Don't complicate it by jumping in and doing what they're supposed to do. And for many women, I think this is really an issue of faith in God. It takes, it takes faith, doesn't it? To sit back and, and wait for the guy to jump in and wait for the guy to, to pray with holy hands. You're like, I'm still waiting, right? Wait for the guy to lead the family spiritually. It's an issue of trust and, and waiting on God. And so he says, you know what? Men need to lead and, and women don't be deceived like Eve was. You need to trust God. It's a faith issue. And then as he goes on in the text, Paul, Paul does something really interesting. Um, he starts to talk about sanctification and motherhood. So a lot of people, they just kind of being like, this is a weird discussion. He's, he's talking about, you know, authority and teaching and elders. And now he talks about motherhood. But actually, as I read it, it makes a lot of sense in verse 15. But women will be preserved, and some of your Bibles say saved, through the bearing of children... If they continue, see, it just gets better and better, doesn't it? If they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So let's notice a couple things. First of all, the word preserved or the word saved in, in your Bibles, it's the same word. It's the word sozo in the Greek. Sometimes it means to save. Sometimes it's referring to salvation. Uh, most of the time, it can, it can mean to rescue, um, but it can also mean to preserve or, or, or to grow or to deliver unharmed. Now, If the word sozo here means saved, then what he's teaching here is that women are saved by having babies, all right? And yet it's, well, that's encouraging, right? Uh, And yet the gospel says that actually women are saved by trusting in Jesus, all right? They're saved by placing their faith in the person of Jesus and the work of Jesus. They're not two gospels here. 
Men and women are saved in the same way, by placing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul obviously isn't saying that women can be saved if they have children. You don't get saved by works. You get saved by faith in Christ. On the other hand, if the word sozo here refers to the idea of being preserved, which, which some of your translations say, that makes it an issue of, of sanctification or spiritual growth. In other words, to put it another way, what he's saying is that God uses the bearing and raising of children as a big part of the spiritual growth of mothers. So moms, any amens? Does that make sense to you, right? Would you say that God has used the bearing and raising of kids as part of your sanctification, as part of your spiritual growth. Now, the Bible says that for some women, it's not God's will for them to get married or to have children. And that is, that is a, a calling from God. But for many women, it's to get married and it's to have children. Now, sadly, our culture has, has belittled motherhood. And that's because our culture is deceived thoroughly and entirely. In fact, what the Bible says is children are a blessing, right? Children are not a burden, all right? Children uh, are a blessing, and motherhood is an honor. In fact, reading an article um, that appeared a few years ago in Fast Company, I get a little Fast Company, it's a, it's a secular business uh, magazine, but I get a little thing every week um, on some articles. And they had an article uh, that, about how after decades of feminism in, a, in our culture, that actually many women are increasingly saying, we want to get married, we want to have kids, and we're not willing to sacrifice those things for a career. They put it this way, there's a new feminism in America that says women can be smart and women can be educated and still choose to be a mother. Paul says it's also a means of sanctification. It grows and matures women in their faith if if it's done, right, because it doesn't grow everybody. If it's done with several things, notice, he says, with faith. So if you're going to grow in, in, in your sanctification through motherhood, first of all, it requires faith in God. And that's kind of safe to say, isn't it? At trying to mother without faith in God, that's like a whole other picture. It says, it, it takes a lot of faith to be a mom. It takes a lot of faith as your kids get older to trust God. Actually, it's true of fathers too. It also takes, it takes love a sacrificial love that's willing to, to spend itself, that's willing to sacrifice itself on its children. It takes a consecration. That's another way of putting that word sanct to sanctify. It takes a, a mother who actually consecrates herself as being a, a, a mother to those children that would honor God and raise them in the love and admonition of the Lord. And it also takes self-restraint, <laughs> which actually sounds like it, what it means is to have a sound mind, uh, to be thoughtful in the way that you raise your kids, which, yes, also makes sense. Now, again, some people read this passage and they're like, this is just demeaning to women. It's just demeaning to say that, first of all, women can't be elders, but here's a, you know, here's a bonus card. You can be mothers, all right? So you don't get to be elders in the church, uh, but you get to be mothers. That's like the bone that we're going to throw you. But, uh, and, and again, I would say in our culture, there's a lot of people that will, that will tell you that. And I absolutely, 100% disagree with that. Now, I had a chance to, to think about this over the last few weeks. In fact, you know, we got, we got snowed out a couple of weeks ago. And I was glad for that because it gave me um, a little extra time to think about this sermon and the last one and pray about it. And here's one of the things that I thought about as a father, and I don't know if I'm the only father who feels this way, 
But I would tell you that when I, when I think about motherhood, uh, when I look at my wife and I look at her relationship with our three children, one of the things that I can tell you for me is that there, there are many unique things that exist between a mother and a child that honestly at times I'm very envious of. The, 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 the bond that is forged through the birth and through just the time and the raising of children. And there are many times when I look at my wife and her relationship. Now, I love my relationship with my kids, but I play a different role. My wife and I had an agreement uh, when our kids were born as to what our roles would be. And let's just say she kind of got the heavy work at the beginning, and then I was given the heavier work when they became teenagers. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of times when I, when I look at my kids and I look at my wife and I'm, I'm envious of the kind of relationship she has with them because I don't, I don't get that role with them. I, it, God's will for me is to have a different role with my kids and I won't kind of get into that. But dads, maybe, maybe you've had those times too where you look and think, man, she's got, that's pretty cool, the relationship between a mom and, and their children. The intimate relationship that's forged during the pregnancy and the birth and the infancy, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing to be treasured. It's a thing to be, it's a thing to be valued. Now, with that being said, let me just mention this. Um, what I've been doing this weekend and last weekend and the weekend before is what elders do. It's laying down the doctrine in the church. We are making our way through 1 Timothy, and, and my job as we go through, verse by verse, is to look at it, study it, to bring it to the church, and to give you my best sense, my best conviction of what the Scripture says. Now, I'm not perfect, and I don't have it all together. But what I'm giving you this weekend is my best sense, having prayed over this and having fasted over this, that, that this is what Scripture teaches. Now, that being said, I'll just, I'll admit, there are some people who don't like Paul. All right, I get that a lot. Like, what was Paul's problem? And what did he have against women? And, and yet, notice what, what Peter says about Paul. Speaking of Paul, he says this. He says, now Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So Peter's writing about Paul, and I love this. He's kind of like, I know I've read Paul too. Sometimes, I don't know, you know, sometimes I got to, but notice what he says. He's like, now his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which, wow, which ignorant and unstable people distort. That's what's happening in Ephesus, all right? People are hearing the word of God. People are thinking about the order of creation. People are thinking about, you know, what God has to say about men and women, and some people are like, they don't like it. They don't like it. And so what, what do they do? They distort it. And that's the, that's the false doctrine that's coming up here. And notice what he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures. So they never just stop here. To their own destruction. Now Paul says sometimes when you read the Bible and you don't like it, the tendency is to fight it. The tendency is to twist the, twist the words of scripture. Or, you know, just say, I don't like Paul. I just to write him off or just to say it's cultural and it doesn't apply today. But instead, there's another way to do this. That is to take it to God, to, to pray about it, to have a peaceable spirit about it, to have a quiet and submissive spirit about it. See, as I come to Scripture very clearly, this is what I believe, that God has created men and women with equal worth, with equal value to God. When Christ came, he broke down all the barriers Men, women in the church can stand side by side and know that God values all of us 
equally because we have been created in the image of God. Men, women are God image bearers. Women have nothing to prove to men. Men have nothing to prove to women. We are of equal worth to God, but God has given us unique roles. Paul's just saying, don't confuse that. Don't confuse your roles with your worth because God hasn't done that and God doesn't confuse it. Embrace it. Thank God for it. Now, with that being said, let me close with this. You, you can disagree with me on this, all right? You can walk out and say, well, now not only do I not like Paul, I don't like Bob either, okay? And, you know, you're, you can do that. And, all right, we're going to just have one service next weekend in my office, right? So we've offended so many people. But let me just, let me just say this. You're still, you're still welcome here. And, and we can still love each other, can't we? And we can still show respect for one another. But Gateway is committed to biblical doctrine as clear and, and, and as, as we can see it in Scripture. Regardless of what our culture says, or regardless of what the latest Christian fads are, we are committed to what the Bible says. Whatever the cost. Amen? Amen. Now, let me just say this. Um, I love you. Uh, I want to say thank you for making my job um, a pleasure, a joy. Um, over the last few weeks, I have felt a lot of support from you about being able to kind of preach the Word of God. I have, I have done my best to try to make this encouraging, and it has not by, been my goal to insult anyone because I don't think God wants anyone to be insulted. God loves you. God values you. And I do too. I want to thank you just again for your peaceable and loving spirit at Gateway. Let's pray together.